You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to Episode 73 of the Library Pros Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Bob, and welcome to the booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York. The Library Pros Podcast is a bi-monthly podcast, so please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find podcasts. And please check us out on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash The Library Pros. Consider leaving a review or tell a friend or colleague about us because word of mouth is the best way to help our podcast listenership grow. So today joining us is William Salas. He's a librarian at Smithtown Library in Smithtown, New York. Uh, and Will manages the Patent and Trademark Resource Center at Smithtown Library. We're going to speak to Will today about Patent and Trademark Resource Center and uh, what you can do there and, and how it can be utilized by makers who visit uh, and create in makerspaces. But first, let's chat with Will and learn about the Smithtown Library. So tell us how long you've been a librarian and how long you've been at Smithtown. Uh, well, first, you guys sound really professional. Well done. <laughs> and it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm not trying not to be the weak link of the chain here. About me... Not with that voice, you're not. <laughs> appreciate it. Well, I've been doing this for 20 years, since 2000. I started as a trainee at the Pat Med Library in the Young Adult Audiovisual Department under Dave Jones. Great wow, guy. with Dave? Yeah. Oh, that's hysterical. You know Dave? Yeah, sure. Everybody knows West Dave. Hampton, right? That's right. Yep. Great guy. Yeah. So I was young adult for a while, and then I was offered a position at Smithtown Library in 2004 uh, in the adult reference department. And I, I was a little nervous about the transition from young adult to adult, and I can still remember my very first adult reference question. Can you? Who was it? I was hoping you would ask. Go for it. <laughs> a, uh, a budding author comes up to me, and he asks, can you tell me or help me find the burial place of all nine of Jack the Ripper's victims? Seriously? Your first question? I thought I am home. I loved that question. It turned out there were more than nine or less, less than nine, depending on who you ask. But the point is, I just was on fire after that. I loved being Holy an adult cow. reference. Yes. That is crazy. All right. So, Will, uh, can you explain for our listeners what a patent and a trademark are? Uh, yes. So... Everybody has a little bit of property on them. Sometimes they carry them with them. They go to work. They put it in a locker. You go home. You put your property in your home. You build a fence around your home. You lock your doors. So there's also something called intellectual property. These thoughts, ideas, ideas uh, that come from your own mind. You can't really lock those up anywhere because you'd look silly and you wouldn't be able to share your idea to monetize them. So there's a different way to protect those ideas. Uh, the whole genre is called intellectual property, and there are four different flavors. You have your copyrights, which I'm sure you're aware of, protects your artistic works, your song lyrics, your screenplays. There are trade secrets that are enjoyed by companies like WD-40, Coca-Cola's secret recipe, Kentucky Fried Chicken's secret recipe. And then there are the two that I work with, patents, which means patent is a grant, a U.S. government grant given to an inventor that protects that inventor. For 20 years or 15 years, if it's a design patent, no one can make or use or import or sell that inventor's technology in the United States and its territories. Now, a lot of inventors find out the hard way that they get a U.S. patent granted to them. They arrange for 100,000 units to be built in Canada or China or Mexico. Well, if that manufacturer likes your idea, he might make 200,000 units, sell you back the original 100,000, and then use the other 100,000 to sell elsewhere around the world. And it's perfectly legal because your U.S. patent will only protect you in the United States. So there's a lot of popular, a lot of these myths going out there that I help a lot of my patrons who come visit me at the Smithtown Library with. And 
moving on to trademarks. A trademark, everyone sees them when they go shopping. A lot of people shop basically on their trademarks. I remember being a boy going to the shoe store, going in front of the tennis shoes and seeing that Nike swoosh. Well, that's exactly what a trademark is. A name, a logo, a symbol that helps consumers know this, who is the source of that product. And if they're a good company, they have a good reputation, that trademark goes a long way toward attracting customers. You know, it's funny that you mentioned uh, that the patent only isn't affecting the United States. I remember years ago, some somewhere in, in this old brain of mine, that uh, that they would, if there's a particular treaty with another country, they would recognize the patent. Isn't that true still? Yes and no. What it is, if someone tries to get a patent in, let's say, Europe somewhere, mm -hmm. that European patent examiner will do a search worldwide. And if it's discovered that it is patented in the United States, that patent uh, applicant in Europe will not get a patent. There is no such thing as an international patent, and they just probably never will be because countries just say, can't seem to get along with with, um, they can't seem to hammer out a negotiation, a deal, who's going to get what monies and who's going to get what kinds of protection. But to get a patent, your idea not only has to be new or novel to the United States Patent Office or anywhere. It could be somewhere in China. It could be somewhere in Argentina. When you file for a patent application on, let's say, a new mousetrap, it's going to go to an expert at the Patent Office on mousetraps. And he or she will know all the trade shows, trade magazines, certainly all the patent offices. And if that person discovers that your mousetrap technology already exists or was published in the paper in Argentina and it is discovered, then that could be enough to deny you your patent. Wow. That's a lot of – there must be thousands of experts. Well, there are, and that's why there's a whole industry of professionals who do this kind of search. Um, a lot of people will go directly to a patent attorney. What people benefit from by visiting with me at the Smithtown Library is if you're one of those folks who wakes up one day, you nudge your loved one, I have a great idea that's going to change the world or at least make us a lot of money, let's go forward. Where do they go next? They don't know what to do. Some, some people go directly to an invention firm like I did years ago. I went to an invention firm off in Hicksville before I was even aware of patented trademark resource centers. I sat through the entire speech and I didn't say boo about my idea. That's the one thing I knew not to do. Mm -hmm. At the very end, I was younger then, the gentleman was so impressed that I was able to keep my mouth shut that he offered me a job helping him sell dental insurance. <laughs> I, I knew I was in the wrong place. So I did my own research. And I discovered there was something called a patent and trademark depository library. And I discovered that the nearest one near me was at Stony Brook University. And this was when I was starting to work at Smithtown. So I thought, well, let me do the due diligence and check this out. At the very least, I can take a look at it and I can report to my patrons about what's available there. I took the tour. And then it was at Stony Brook University deep in their library. Not easy to find unless you went there. I actually did go there and had trouble finding it. Mm -hmm. In any case, after the tour, the librarian tells me she's retiring. And no, one, no one's picking up the mantle. No one's going to continue this patent and trademark depository library. My next question is, well, how do I become one? And she explained it to me. I thought it was doable. I pitched it to my director who pitched it to the board. And about five, six years later, we were accredited and opened our doors in 2013. Now, that's, that's at the main, right? At the main building, yes. So we'll get into how Smithtown's set up in a little bit. Sure. But, um, it really is, because uh, I've seen it, and it's really kind of a, a cool resource. 
Yeah, and we're very lucky that with the digital age that we are no longer getting reams of paper because it used to be, if you were to visit an older patent and trademark resource center like Cleveland Public, uh, you would see they would have like a huge hall of papers and, and uh, gazettes and such and CD-ROMs. Now everything's digitized save for plant patents, and I'll explain why later. We're able to have our small corner where I can meet with patrons and teach them the patentability process or how to search for their mark at the trademark electronic search system. So uh, how did you get involved with being knowledgeable in patents and trademarks? Well, I, like I said, I had woken up with that idea, and I told my wife about it. It was an idea for a shoe with a new sole that could be trans that could be transported, or it could be uh, switched with another sole and make different footprints in the sand for kids. And then I discovered that some bowler out in the Midwest had discovered it already and patented it. <laughs> then I had several ideas. Um, I had an idea. People love to sing in the shower, so I had an idea for a design patent where you're just protecting the ornamentation of it, not the functionality of it. But people like to sing in the shower and. I thought I could design a new shower head that would look like an old-time microphone. My wife laughed. <laughs> she said, oh, people will drown. I think she was kidding. In any case, uh, I found that that already existed. So as I'm finding all these inventions that I think would be a good idea and I'm discovering that they already exist, I realize that this is a great value because I'm not paying anyone to make these discoveries for me. And I'm probably right. saving hundreds, if not thousands of dollars. That really is cool. So... Now that we've kind of got the brief overview, what we're going to do is take a short break, and when we get back, we're going to learn more about the what we're going to call the PTRC, since it's such a mouthful, um, how it's used, and how it can be an effective tool for inventors who use libraries and makerspaces. So we'll be right back. Hi, it's Chris from the Library Pros, and I want to tell you about the book, Best Technologies for Public Libraries, Policies, programs and services. I, along with Nick Tanzi and James Hutter, both amazing technology librarians and previous guests on this podcast, co-authored the endeavor. If you're interested in bringing 3D printing, augmented reality, virtual reality, or drone flying to your library, this book has what you need. It's a roadmap to successfully implementing this technology because we cover purchasing, developing effective policy, finding the right software, and have model programs and services already designed to make planning programs easier. You can find the book on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you buy books or ebooks. I hope you'll check it out. All right, so we are back with Will Salas from the Smithtown Library. And Will, let's start at the beginning. We've talked about the PTRC being at the library, but what exactly is it and how can it be used by patrons? Okay, so the PTRC, the Patent and Trademark Resource Center, we are a network of public libraries and academic libraries, and I believe one state library. Uh, nationwide, there's about 85 of them. Uh, the Smithtown Library is the only one on Long Island, and what we do is we just make information available to the public. Um, we, the reason we exist is because of uh, Title 35, U.S. Code 12. Basically, that says that the director of the patent office is allowed to have patent documents and patent applications available in public libraries and libraries around the country. And the reason they want to do that is because the patent office gets much of their funding through the applications and maintenance fees of inventors and everyday people like you and me. So it behooves them to get the word out. It behooves them to get more people applying. And so what we do is we invite people in who are not 
we have people of all different varying degrees of ability with patents. We have people who are professionals. You have engineers and we have patent attorneys. They come in and use a couple of our databases that are exclusive to patent and trademark resource centers. Also, they're available at the headquarters of the Patent and Trademark Office in Alexandria, Virginia on the first floor. But rather than traveling all the way down there, which some attorneys have been doing in our area, they were just jazzed when they found out that they could get access to that very same database, Pub East, Public uh, Examiner-Assisted Search Tool, right in Smithtown without having to take that flight down to uh, Alexandria, Virginia. And so those are for professionals and engineers. But then you have your everyday people. And what I do is I teach them how to begin the patentability search. Well, what you're looking for is what they call prior art, any previous existence of your technology. Because one of the four requirements to get a patent is your idea has to be new, novel to the whole world. Uh, also on the trademark end of things, if you have a business or are thinking of starting a business and you want to have a logo that represents you, a name, a symbol, even the sounds, there are about 300 plus sound marks now at the patent, at patent and trademark office and you probably recognize some of them. I play some of them when I visit with schools and I, I, I play some of them for my students when I'm trying to make a point about how much money and how important it is that these companies are able to educate consumers to recognize their symbols and logos. So I'll play like the Aflac duck and I'll have them raise their hand if they know what it is. And I'll, have, I'll play like the NBC chimes, the ESPN kind of chime. And I, sometimes I'll play ones that they may not recognize that kind of dates me. I played one and the, the audio was simply a, a, a loud voice going ho, ho, ho. And you and I know it was the Green Giant, the yeah. Jolly Green Giant. Yeah. But I was dating myself because these fourth graders in front of me kept saying Santa Claus. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but it's a lot of fun. I get uh, kids, I get kids, I get adults, I get a lot of contractors, stay-at-home moms, uh, doctors, professionals, and there's something for everyone at the Patent and Trademark Resource Center. But I especially like when people come in and I teach them how to do their own searching because I could be potentially saving them lots of money. Oh, absolutely, sure. Um, so, I remember uh, I was a call-in librarian at Smithtown back in the day, um, which basically means they called you in when they needed you. And um, I remember one time uh, I worked a shift with you at the main, which is, and when we mean the main, Smithtown is actually a, a unique library here in Suffolk County because it's one of the few libraries that actually has branches. So, Smithtown main means it's the main library for um for Smithtown, and then you have branches. You have four branches, right? Yes, we have four buildings. I'm at Smithtown. It's a one North Country Road, downtown Smithtown, easily accessible. Uh, rather central when you take a look at Long Island. It's rather central to uh, the island, so it's a really great location for people from Montauk to uh, Huntington to Nassau County to come visit uh, the Patent and Trademark Resource Center. Mm -hmm. And then you have what? You have Kings Park? Kings Park, Nesconset, and Comac. Okay. So, uh, so there's actually four buildings that, that are there. So when we talk about Smithtown, Maine, we're talking about the main, the main the largest, library. Largest library district in uh, Suffolk County. That's right. So talking about my time when I was there, you had get, showed me what the uh, Patent Trademark Resource Center was. And I was fascinated because I used to work in the courts. So anything law kind of gets me excited a little bit. When a patron comes in to use the space, what's the process both for you as a person who manages it and the patron, you know, and what do you articulate that can be done or that the patron can do? Um, and I assume, you know, you can only assist and, and not do the research for them, correct? Right. I'm not allowed to give any legal advice or business advice. But over the years, I have uh, gotten together quite a list of resources because 
when you're new to the game of starting a business or creating an invention, you really got to build a team around you. There is a wealth of experience out there and really good people who want, who want to help out. Uh, every state has a small business development center. Stony Brook's uh, small business development center and Farmingdale State College's small business development center have been fantastic. I've reached out to them. They've reached out to me. I refer patrons to them and vice versa. Uh, what I offer uh, people who come in, uh, the, the biggest thing I can offer them is the demonstrations where they can learn and empower themselves to learn about whether or not their idea is actually new, novel to the whole world. Or if their mark can be, um, is it already taken? And then they're better educated about taking that next step. And I never discourage anyone from hiring an attorney. It is a legal process. It is probably a good idea. But if you're a do-it-yourselfer and um, you feel up for a challenge, and it is a challenge, it's a great thing to do. Um, I myself have had, uh, I've spoken about ideas I have had. I have yet to have a patent of my own, but... I'm leaving some room on my trophy case for the first one. <laughs> <laughs> so just, just in terms of um, uh, this, again, it's another one of those things that's floating in my head from way back in the day. Um, isn't there something called an implied trademark or an implied trademark when it comes to uh, branding and things like that? Well, yes and no. The implied was the uh, the classic TM that you sometimes see encircled next to a logo mm-hmm. that is free to use. Anyone can use that right away. You might even see sometimes SM. Uh, the TM stands for trademark. The mm-hmm. SM stands for service mark. The difference is trademarks are tangible goods, like the, the chair I'm sitting in, the microphone in front of me. The SM would be more appropriate for services like uh, lawn cutting or tax services. So the TM and the SM is just alerting the competition that that person who's using that logo, name, symbol, or what have you, is interested in protecting their uh, intellectual property and that they may be in the process of having their trademark registered. But when you see that R that's encircled, that means that it is a registered mark, registered with the United States Trademark Office, and that if you use anything, if you use it, then you may be infringing upon another company's uh, intellectual property. So because the space is not for the exclusive use of Smithtown patrons only, uh, because it's a federally funded facility, you must get people from all over the place. So how many PRTCs are there locally and in New York? Uh, we have four or five in New York, five, including myself. There are four others. There is Albany, Buffalo, New York, and Rochester. So I'm the only ga- not the only game in town, but um, I'm the only one who will... Uh, can teach you this kind of thing. I don't charge anyone. I welcome anyone. I have plenty of handouts. I do a lot of pre-screening before you make your way. I do ask that you make an appointment. You can call me at the Smithtown Library. It's 631-360-2480, extension 128. I do some pre-screening because if you're going to be interested in trademarks, I don't want to waste your time with patents. Um, some people are unaware where they want to go, but I give them a good overview, overview, and then we hone in on what exactly they need to know. I have a small but growing collection of books that they're allowed to borrow, a lot of the NOLO series that helps them uh, understand what a, a little further about what they need. And I have a really great hot list of um, local resources for them. And if they decide to go ahead and hire an attorney, I can direct them and teach them how to use the directory. Because to get it, to be a patent attorney, you have to pass a separate exam in addition to the bar exam. And for that reason, there's actually a directory of patent attorneys that you could use to find out someone locally or uh, find out what firms are working with this particular type of intellectual property or, or inventions if you want to get an expert in that field. Well, that really is kind of cool. Um, not cool. It sounds like it's a lot of work to become a patent attorney. 
Because you have to take that extra um, exam. It is, but there's also something called an agent. An agent has also taken the exam, but does not have the JD, the the, the law degree. They can um, do a lot of the work for you, filing and the searching, but they won't be able to litigate for you in court. A lot of uh, law firms will have both agents and attorneys. Um, and then when, if you come visit with me, I can help you get a list of agents and attorneys in your area. Then you can cold call them and see about what kinds of fees are available to you. So who was, where was the furthest person that's ever come to use it? I did have someone come from Philadelphia, but it's not just to see me. They were from Philadelphia, and I wasn't there. They didn't know they had to make an appointment, so I had heard about this secondhand. But as it turns out, she turned up later in the week that she happened to be visiting family in the area. So I'm not getting a swelled head that people travel (laughs) that far to see me. But I do get folks from all over um, uh, Suffolk and Nassau County to come see me. And, And Stony Brook is no longer... Well, yes, Stony Brook is no longer. They were very um, generous. I was able to collect a lot of the plant patents from them. Now, as I mentioned earlier, much of what we work with now is digitized, the patent database and the trademark electronic search database. But plants still come in paper format and photographs because uh, while there are uh, patent and trademark resource centers and other libraries that are digitizing and making these plant patents searchable, the image is so important that you can't chance someone trying to file a patent on an image when one computer and one um, one monitor just doesn't have the same resolution, the same colors. They differ, but the picture will always be the same. So those pictures, uh, uh, plant patents, are available at patent and trademark resource centers uh, like mine. And also, if you want to take a trip down to Alexandria, Virginia, at the headquarters, uh, one-third of the first floor of the Madison Building at the Patent and Trademark Campus is an open public library where you can do some searching. They also have a lovely museum on the first floor. So when you say plant, you're actually talking about physical, like plants that grow. Oh, yes, exactly. Not like a, a, constru- a, a manufacturing plant. Exactly like what that. you think of. Your, your trees, your shrubs, your berries, your fruits. And if you look at them, sometimes I will bring them to schools with me because I do a lot of outreach at schools. And mm-hmm. I will show them a plant patent. And some of them will say, well, Mr. Salas, that's just a peach. And yes, it is just a peach, but it is a new variety. If you can asexually reproduce a new variety of plant or a fruit or a vegetable, then you can get a, a patent on that. And the peach might look like a peach and taste like a peach, but it could be that that peach has been grown growing in another time of year where it normally would not have. And that might be enough for them to get a patent on it. Or it has different coloration, or it is not susceptible to certain types of diseases and blight. If it's different enough, you might be able to get a patent on that. So like the difference between a, a seeded watermelon and an unseeded watermelon. That may, that may be enough to get a patent. That's amazing stuff. That really is cool. So tying this into maker spaces, mm-hmm. um, I know Smithtown has a few 3D printers now. You guys are working on makerspace things. So this is probably a no-brainer. But I would assume that Smithtown gets a lot of inquiries now from people who are trying to design things, 3D print them, and then bring them to market. Have you, have you seen that happen yet? Yes, we have a really robust 3D printing department. We have 3D printers at all of our buildings. We now have several varieties of 3D printers. And uh, Jimmy Buckman and TJ DeBole, our tech guys, Those are guys fantastic. are great. They are working on creating our very own uh, makerspace on the lower level of the Smithtown main building. Uh, they're very talented guys. I go to them a lot. And I've actually had TJ DeBole. is a great designer. Uh, he uses a lot of the CAD software. And he's done designs for me. And I'm still on my quest for that first patent. Because, you know, it's, it's interesting. We've had a few um, patrons to come here to Satrum, uh, and they're designing products that they want to bring to market. And one guy actually 
Um, he's got backers, so he's ready to actually. He has backers that have a factory in China. Mm. So based upon what he designed and we printed here, he used that. Those as his models that were able to get him into contracts with manufacturers and, and backers. So. You know, there are success stories out there, so I can imagine that this is a great resource for, for people like that. And they've used it. We've had success story recently. It was a gentleman in Kings Park, uh, Bob Jordan, I think his name was. He and his uh, daughter had had an idea about using sidewalk chalk, and he would use a rake to make a sidewalk chalk lines, and the neighborhood kids would get together, and they would do some kind of uh, bicycle racing or such. But everyone thought it was such a good idea that they pushed him along to go ahead and try and get it, make that into an invention, and I believe he had. I believe it, he might have gotten the patent for that. Mm -hmm. So, And he used our 3D printers to make and design the uh, device, and that attaches to a rake, which will uh, take a couple of pieces of sidewalk chalk, and there he was. And um, which reminds me, when I go to these schools, sometimes I get asked, well, where do these good inventions, where do these ideas come from? And I just tell them that, you know, just like it had been said uh, thousands of years ago, I forget the philosopher, but uh, necessity is the mother of invention. And that is so true. I tell these students when I visit them that if you can solve a problem with a device, it's very likely that there are hundreds or not thousands of others who have that similar problem, and they may need your device or use your device. So think about problems, ways to solve them, and then you start thinking like an inventor. You start looking around and seeing things differently because now you realize that if I have a problem, many others may have the same problem. If I can solve it, find, make a device, uh, some kind of contraption that will make this job easier or better, then that could be a product that may have some commercial uh, success. That really is kind of interesting. Um, so one thing that I, I was thinking about, because we were talking before about if something is manufactured in another country. So the trademark really has more to do, or, or the patent has more to do with bringing it to market in the United States, not necessarily the manufacturing end, right? Right. The patent will protect you wherever it is that you have a patent. Let's say you believe that you will have a big market in Canada, then you have to fill out a separate patent application for Canada. There's something called the Patent Cooperative Treaty, where your paperwork will be filed internationally, but mm -hmm. you still have to file applications and have fees to those individual uh, patent offices. Some of them are regional, like the European Patent Office has over 30 countries involved, and some of them are country-specific. Uh, when you come to see me and uh, you have an appointment with me, what I will teach you is what we call, or what the patent U.S. Patent Office calls a preliminary patent search. Mm -hmm. That is the searching of the big three patent offices in the world, the United States, the European, and the Japanese patent offices. So the patent office feels that after you've searched and exhausted those three big patent offices, then you're going to be better informed about whether or not you want to go ahead and make an investment into your idea. Okay. It, and the other thing, too, that I wanted to ask, much like um, copyright, where copyright does expire after a certain period of time, does a patent or trademark expire? They certainly do. The patent will expire. There's three different kinds of patents. I mentioned the um, plant patents. There's also a utility patent and a design patent. Uh, the utility patent lasts for 20 years. A utility patent is for any kind of new article of manufacture, composition of matter, um, a new machine, uh, any improvements upon those. Well, as a design, not lasts for 50, uh, 20 years. A design patent lasts for 15 years. A design patent just protects the ornamentation of a new device. I always think of Steve Jobs when I think of design patents. Mm -hmm. When you think of his iPod, he didn't invent the working parts of the iPod, but he gave it those curved edges and those nice rounded buttons, which doesn't add any functionality to it, just makes it look 
cooler or jazzier or more modern. Mm -hmm. So he was able to get design patents on those cosmetic differences. Those only last 15 years. And plant patents will last 20 years. And can, can they be renewed? They cannot be renewed. However, there is somewhat of an exception. Pharmaceuticals, because of so much of pressure to make sure that they're not harmful to anyone, they have to go through the FDA, they do get extensions. However, while new patent, while a patent, once it expires, the technology is free for anyone to use. Really? Anyone can use it, yes. That's why you have a lot of pharmaceutical knockoffs waiting for the 20th year of a patent to expire, and then you have all these other companies making that same medication. The generics. The generics. If yeah. they can do it cheaper, quicker, deliver it better, then they're going to be in business. But however, pharmaceuticals uh, is a good example about how something can be patented again. The good example that I like to use is aspirin. Aspirin's been around for many, many years. Uh, it's been out of patent for many, many years. However, if you can find a use for it, and there was a farmer that did. A farmer discovered that if you fed aspirin to your hogs, they would get bigger and fatter and they'd be ready for slaughter sooner. And that's exactly what he did. He fed aspirin to hogs, and he was able to patent the process of feeding aspirin to hogs for that purpose of fattening them. Wow. That's really interesting because if there's a new use, then, then you can renew the patent. Right, for that purpose. For that purpose. Right. I did not know that. Wow. So what happens, I'm just brainstorming here. Let's say you have a, a device or an apparatus and somebody starts replicating a part for that oh, after, the, after the 15 <laughs> years. Does that get a little more complicated? I'm not asking for legal advice. I'm just saying generally in terms of... Well, what's, what do you get as a patent? So you, you own a patent and now you can prevent others from... Uh, making, using, importing, or selling it in the United States and its territories. What I like to tell people is that they should think of their patent as more of a hunting license because the patent office is not going to police your industry. They're not going to come knocking on your door and saying, hey, Johnny, someone's importing your device through the Mexican border, or hey, someone's building your device in Idaho. You have to police your industry, and if you discover anyone is infringing upon your technology, you can contact them, ask them to stop. If that doesn't work, you can take them to court. If you're taking someone to court for infringing upon your technology and the judge finds in your favor, the judge will award you, an, uh, sometimes he will award you 5% of that person's proceeds, mm -hmm. which doesn't sound like a lot. But when you think that this person who has infringed upon your patent, he had to fabricate and manufacture, he had to advertise, market, and deliver, it's going to cripple that person. And 5% represents what would be the normal licensing fee. You see, when you get a patent, it's a product. You can will it to your next of kin, you could sell it, or you can license it. A lot of folks like to license them. I work with a lot of people who are not so much businessmen or women, they're more idea people. Their goal is to find a product that they can license to a corporation to build and deliver, manufacture, market, and sell for them, and they could just sit back and receive a nice check every quarter, which is my dream. <laughs> <laughs> it's, all, it's everybody's dream. Yeah. So, But in, in, as far as infringing, if you take someone to court for infringing upon your patent and the judge finds in your favor and you're able to prove that this company infringed intentionally, knowingly, then the judge may award you up to 15% of that person's proceeds, which will cripple them because they also have to stop making the device. And he may award that that person who infringed upon your uh, patent has to pay your legal fees. Wow. So that's the kind of um, weapons you're dealing with when you have a patent. Wow. It's all so much, it, this is all such great information. and I had no idea that it, it was that detailed. Obviously, it must be if you're an attorney and you have to take an extra licensing exam. 
Well, yeah, <laughs> thanks, Chris. <laughs> it's hard to find a good audience for this because you either have to have an invention or just be really into law <laughs> and, yeah, and yeah. this sort of thing to really uh, get people to perk up. <laughs> yeah, and, and this is very, very fascinating to me because, um, you know, because of my my previous, you know. Uh, career. That's right. You used to work at the courts. Yeah, I used to work in the courts. So we, we didn't see this because it was state court, but I'm assuming this goes to federal court. This goes to probably the district courts, right? Yes. Yeah, litigation. So you'll, you'll see a lot about the um, um, intellectual property having to do with software. It's still a Wild West show there. I don't know if they know how to regulate it yet because so much has changed. And it's not tangible, but yet it's tangible. Well, you can patent software if it, there is a visible uh, effect on the screen. Something has to have uh, it has to be has some functionality. It has to be something that you can see change. You can't just patent algorithms or uh, something that you, there's no tangible change that you cannot see. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the whole idea and concept of intellectual property is now transforming with the invention of apps and code and. You know, you take one, let's say you take the Microsoft Windows code and you alter it to a certain degree. Now it's yours, maybe. I don't know. Just throwing it out there. Um, There's just so much to it that hasn't been figured out yet. Right. And because there's this muddling of these new technologies happening so fast, there are some complaints, some schools of thought where the patents are slowing things down. But the reason patents exist is because if you're an inventor and you go and you have a lab and you put in equipment and you you have all these tests and you put out all these products and you have to test them and finally you have a product at the very end, you've done all of that work and you've spent all of that time and all that money to create a product. And then if you've released it, and the first person who buys it, reverse engineers it, decides he can make it, he can do the same thing cheaper. Well, all of a sudden you have a competitor who's going to outdo you after you've put in all that invest, invested all that money and time. So what the patent does, it's rewarding the inventor and it's giving the inventor the incentive to keep on inventing, knowing that his ideas will be protected. Wow, there's so much to this. We could talk, probably talk for another two or three hours about this just because we're both nerdy into this. <laughs> but... Uh, but I want to thank you for coming in and talking about all this because this really this really should start conversations in your library if you know you you have if you do have a makerspace mm-hmm. and people are asking you these questions. Um, is there a website for people who are throughout the country or, or maybe internationally that they can go to to find out more information about this? Yes, uh, the first thing they should do is go to the USPTO.gov website. That's the United States Patent and Trademark Office. A lot of great information there. It's uh, might be a little intimidating for some. But uh, they have really great tutorials there. And if you want to know more about what I do or visit with me, you want to visit the Smithtown Library website at uh, smith.lib.org. Uh, I'm sorry, smith.lib.org, smithlib.org. There is a link for the Patent uh, Resource Center. Um, if you call me at 631-360-2480, extension 128, I will sit down with you. Uh, we'll make an appointment, and we'll go over patents or trademarks or both. That is very cool. So thanks for being on with us. And we're going to take a short break because when we come back, we are going to ask Will our list of questions, our 032 list, as we call it. It's the top 10 list that we ask all of our guests. And it's something that um, the 032 is the Dewey number for top 10 lists. Sounds like fun. And we have to give credit where credit is due every time to Melanie Cardone from the Longer Public Library for giving us the idea for the name. So we will be right back.
So we are back with William Salas from the Smithtown Public Library, uh, who will be our next participant in our 032 list. The questions in our list were inspired by Literary Hub, a library news site that has stories and interviews related to library land. You can see their work by visiting lithub.com. They do a great job educating and informing library professionals on great topics from all over the world. Thank you, Literary Hub. Okay, so you ready? I'm ready. Okay. So first question, what did you want to be when you were a child? Good one. Uh, I wanted to be a stuntman. <laughs> yeah. Uh, second, my second thing was I, I wanted to be a soldier. And for like three or four Halloweens in a row, I wore camouflage. And I did wind up becoming a soldier. Um, uh, and stuntman, no, that never worked out. But uh, do you remember the old TV show, The Fall Guy? Oh, absolutely. Lee Majors? Lee Majors, yeah. That was me. I wanted to do that. And my, um, my big stunt was, for some reason, I got it in my head that I wanted to jump out of a helicopter at 10,000 feet. Now, mind you, I hadn't taken physics yet, but obviously <laughs> that's not going to work out. <laughs> that's hysterical. But yeah, I wanted to be a stuntman as a kid. You certainly have the voice for it. Well, thank you. Thank you. It'll be great. You, know, you have the movie phone voice. Like, we'll get ready for, you know, that's great. <laughs> um, so what's your first memory of a library, and who brought you to the library for the first time? Well, I am an ESL kid, actually. English is my second language. So I remember my parents taking me to the Patrick Medford Library when they were uh, a different location. But uh, my strongest memories was in elementary school. I would be taken out of class. Um, sometimes during recess, I would be at the library, me and the librarian, and I used to love being in the stacks. Uh, my favorite books to read back then when I was learning was books about American frontiersmen, uh, women, uh, Annie Oakley, uh, Kit Carson, Davy Crockett. I was an outdoorsy kind of kid, and I was in heaven then. That's really kind of, that's unique. We haven't, I don't think we've had an answer like that before. That's really cool. <laughs> so when did you decide to work in a library? And if not, what was your first career path? Because many, as you know, many librarians, uh, their career path was usually to something else. And then they became librarians afterwards, unless you're part of that 1%. Well, no. Um, I was at Stony Brook University, and I was following the, um, the cutest girl in the humanities department. And I was getting to know her. She told me that she was going to be a librarian, and we were both uh, studying to become English teachers. So uh, we, we graduated, went our separate ways, and I was student teaching, and it just wasn't working out for me. And then I found myself um, no longer a student teacher with an English degree, and I'm thinking to myself, well, you know that really beautiful girl back at Stony Brook? She wanted to be a librarian. That's a wonderful idea. And I thought to myself, my favorite times at school was being in the library, doing research, even going back to when I was a kid, that ESL boy at, on recess, looking at these Frontiersman books. So that's where I got the idea. I'm going to follow in her footsteps and become a librarian. Oh, and if she only knew the influence that she had on you, huh? She does. I married her. Oh, there we go. Oh, good story. Wow. It gets better. That's awesome. I wound up getting a part-time job at Smithtown Library, and my very first day, who should show up? That girl from Stony Brook. Wow. Her name was Melissa, and she showed up, and she kept coming for a year. And then I was thinking about asking her out when she asked me out. I thought she was with somebody, <laughs> and uh, wow. a few years later, we're married. That's great. That's, That's a great story. story. Thank you. Thank That's you. an excellent story. Oh. You're definitely destined to be a librarian, huh? For yeah, sure. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Will, who would you say is your favorite fictional librarian? Okay. Fictional librarian. I'm big fan of Shawshank Redemption. Brooks Hatlin, 
Anyone remember him? He oh, yeah. yeah, that yeah great. great character. An unfortunate ending, but I just liked him. Uh, he had a lot of hope, and he was a little crazy. And I think we, we're all a little crazy in this business. But, <laughs> yeah, he was a, a great, great librarian. Okay, our next question. What would you be doing if you were not working in a library? You know, I still think I have a little bit of that um, little boy frontiersman in me. I like to be outdoors, and I very much care about the environment. So I would think I would like to do something, um, not so much uh, putting solar panels onto people's roofs, but maybe working at a solar farm or a wind farm. Um, not so much doing maintenance, but maybe running and, and, and doing some testing, uh, something outdoors and helping the earth. It's a great answer. So what is your favorite section of the library? Oh, I love the stacks. I'm not going to give you a particular call number. I just love being surrounded by these walls of books. I just walk through them, and I just imagine by I can I wish I could just I just absorb all the information in these books by just reaching out my fingertips, and just it's just amazing being through all that knowledge around you, being surrounded by it. For a librarian, it's just a, a big high. So, if you had infinite space and budget, what would you add to your library? Well, you know what I would do? I would add cubicles. You know, a lot of people are working from home. My younger brother, for example, Mark, um, he works from home, and he also has a brand-new dog, Max. And Max won't leave him alone. Just like a lot of patrons who work at home, <laughs> they're great. They get that telecommuting job. They're all, they're all excited, but now they're distracted. They can't get any work done. I see a lot of those people coming into the library, and I think the library would, would really be a great place to have these cubicles with a central area, a central hub with a fax machine, copy machine, scanner, where people can rent them out. If they get very busy, they have to make appointments, but you get all these work-from-home people. Um, going there and maybe people someday you can have these podcast stations like you have here where people can rent them out and run a show from it so that's what I would do I have um, a whole series of cubicles and office work equipment and invite people to come in and use the library that way that's a really good idea you, you guys first. are kind of doing that at station already, right, Chris? Yeah, in, in certain respects, yeah, sure um, yeah. between the makerspace and, and being here in the booth and that other stuff too, yeah I'll tell you what, he's right on, too, because we have some cubicles just for quiet study, right? And the open quiet study is not as busy as the cubicle areas where they can actually just kind of spread themselves out and set themselves up. So, you're right. So, what do you love about your library, Will? I love, I've been there long enough where, and I've had some crazy ideas, but I've had some good ones, like the PTRC, and I was the one who helped start the passport acceptance facility. I love the freedom that I get. Um... I had worked in young adult for a little while, but now I'm strictly working with adults, but I'm still allowed to work with teens a little bit. I was able to help uh, the friends at the library there start a scholarship, um, so I run book sales for them. Um, I love that my administration allows me to be creative. I, have a, I still work with the teens. I run an annual rock, paper, scissors tournament where I get this really huge, god-awful trophy, and the kids love it. Um, we get a lot of kids come out for it, and... Um, just the creativity and the freedom I love, I love about my library. Okay, so this next question is a fun question. Um, what's the weirdest thing that's ever happened that you've seen in your library? Not necessarily the worst thing, but the weirdest. The weirdest thing, I saw a lot of kind of weird things. Um, one time when I was, um, I'm not going to say where, but I was a Spanish-speaking librarian. There was a programmer that hadn't shown... I get a buzz from the children's department, and I call him. He's lost his ride. So next thing I know, I'm driving through the neighborhood, and he gave me directions. I have to go in someone's backyard, down a flight of stairs. <laughs> now I'm sitting on his couch with his roommate watching 
soccer in Spanish while he's in his bedroom getting his paint on because he's a Spanish language clown DJ. So now <laughs> wow. I'm, I'm driving in my personal vehicle. I have this clown, literal a clown. I'm driving around through the neighborhood trying to get him out to the library so he can get his program. <laughs> That's so crazy. The library will lead you to some really <laughs> odd places. <laughs> That's for sure. I don't think we've ever had one like that. That's a good one. Hmm. That's great. So you literally, you so you had a clown car. Is that what you're saying? I literally had a clown car. Yes. <laughs> That's great. So who is your favorite regular patron? Uh, it's got to be my daughter Victoria. She's an avid reader. She's read all the Harry Potter books before she was ten. Uh, she's into a lot of the graphic novels now. Lumberjanes. Uh, thank you, uh, Katie Brands, for recommending that one. Um, sometimes she'll surprise me, which is always fun. Uh, she still gets excited about being in libraries. She likes to volunteer. She volunteers each year at our book sale. And uh, I love when she surprised me, seeing her there, because I know how excited she is and how genuine it is when she comes to visit the library. Wow, that's really great. We've never had that one either. Well, you're hitting all the marks today, man. Wow. Yeah, he's doing well. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad I could help. So final question. What are people without library cards missing out on? You know, that sense of community. Every time I'm in the library, I always see people running into one another. Sometimes they get these family reunions. Um, but you're also getting together with the community of thinkers. You wind up in your area of the collection that you feel uh, really strong about, whether it be poetry, whether it be travel. And you're just connecting to all of this previous knowledge that man has gathered and honed and printed and having all this at your fingertips to me is just exciting. Well, you've been a great sport answering our list of questions. Um, and before we uh, we end the program, do you want to just give the plugs out again for, for the information that you have? Yes. So if you have an idea for an invention, you have a mark that you want to uh, register for that represents your company, uh, please come see me at the Smithtown Library Patent and Trademark Resource Center. Uh, the, we are at um, the phone number is 631-360-2480, extension 128. You make an appointment with me. I will sit down with you and go over the preliminary patent search or show you how to use the trademark electronic search system. You can also find us at smithlib.org. That's great. Will Salas, thank you so That's much great. for coming well, on. Thank you, guys. Bob, Chris, thank it's been well. fantastic. Uh, thank you for coming. You're welcome. We have come to the end of another episode of The Library Pros, and we thank you for listening. If you have any questions or comments on this or any episode, click on the Contact Us form on our website, thelibrarypros.com. Visit us on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash thelibrarypros. Don't forget to tell a friend or colleague and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to our podcasting engineer, Dean Meyer. Remember, the opinions stated by The Library Pros and their guests are solely those of Chris and Bob and are not those of the Sachem Public Library, the MS Clark Memorial Library, or any other library. See you next time. You've been listening to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Pippet Productions and by the Library Pros themselves, Krista Christofaro and Bob Johnson. Special thanks to Sachin Public Library for providing space for this podcast. Until the next turn of the page, I'm your announcer, Carlton Welch.